Welcome to the Best Ever You Show with Elizabeth Hamilton Garino, here to help you find success in all areas of your life. The power is in your hands. Join our network for free at besteveryou.com. And now, here's Elizabeth. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Best Ever You Show. <clears throat> I am still uh, kind of duking it out with this cough and, and uh, funky sound to my voice. <laughs> Whatever. We're going we're gonna to push onward and upward and, and through it and uh, at the same time take good self-care and things like that. Everybody's like, you should not be doing that. I'm like, ah, we're fine. We're fine. I'm, I'm at, a, at the pace of, of you know, one-eighth of the pace I normally go. So it's all good. I'm getting plenty of sleep and everything. But thank you, everybody, for your emails and stuff. Uh, and concern and care and and love, I I always appreciate that. Um, but yeah, we've we've had to reschedule Laura. I have Laura uh, Connell on the phone with me here. She's our guest. She's the author of It's Not Your Fault. And I think we've we've rescheduled this show like three times now between her schedule, my schedule, and then being sick. So Laura, welcome to the Best Ever You Show. Thank you for being here. Hi Elizabeth. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, and I want to just right off the bat point everybody to your website so they can go, people click as they're listening and things like that. So you guys can go to laurakconnell.com. It's L-A-U-R-A-K-C-O-N-N-E-L-L. So two N's, two L's, dot com. And this is a neat moment. You've, you are a, a an author and a coach, and I, I love this. You help people uncover their blind spots that lead to things like relationship struggles and self-sabotage and dysfunction and all these things. And you're, you've written a lot of articles. Um, I like the fact that uh, you've, you've done work with chicken soup for the soul. And then you and I are also with the same fabulous and amazing publisher HCI. So your book is called, it's not your fault. The subconscious reasons why we self-sabotage and how to stop. So I would love for everybody listening to go out and grab a copy of Laura's book. It's, how long ago did this release, Laura? Not too long ago, right? It was September 12th. Yeah, so it's pretty fresh still. It's yeah. just a few months. That's how long we've been trying to do an interview. <laughs> that's <Yes>. okay. <laughs> that's about right. Oh, well. We're here now. That's what matters. Anyway, and thank you exactly. for Lindsay. Thank you to Lindsay for um, all the back and forth and her helping schedule and things like that because um, that's not easy sometimes to Oops, sorry, just bumped my microphone. To compare the two schedules and, and bring the guest on and so forth. But tell us all about your book. Why did you write this book? How many books have you written? All that good stuff about being an author. <clears throat> yeah, this is my very first book, although I've done a lot of other writing with articles. And you mentioned Chicken Soup for the Soul. I've been in newspapers, lots of websites and other publications. But this is my first full-length book. And the reason I wanted to write it is, twofold really. One is because I have an experience of recovering from childhood trauma and this book makes the link between childhood trauma and adult self-sabotage. So those are really the blind spots I talk about when we're sabotaging ourselves and we don't know why and that's because it often goes back to childhood. So I had recovered from that myself and started writing about it mainly through my blog and in that um, writing I grew an audience. And so then, you know, in growing this audience who were kind of resonating with what I was writing, seeing things that they were experiencing, but what they hadn't seen um, in print before made them feel like they weren't alone. And so with that audience, then, you know, now I had an audience for the book. So there's that. But another reason I wanted to write the book is because 
this is not the first book on self-sabotage. Like if you Google self-sabotage, you'll find a lot of books on the topic. But I think what's unique about my book is that it does make that very strong link between the childhood um, events and the ways that you're holding yourself back as an adult. I, I really put those two together. And that's why I say it's not your fault because the things that happened to you when you were a kid, you develop coping mechanisms to deal with what was going on at that time. You bring these maladaptive coping mechanisms into your adult life and they become um, very harmful to you. They really hold you back. But because you don't know any other way to keep yourself safe, you can't really talk yourself out of it. A lot of this stuff is stored in the body, so the the mental way of approaching it doesn't work, and people may have noticed that that hasn't worked. So a lot of books on this topic talk about thought control or willpower or behavior modification, and those never worked for me. And another thing a lot of books on this topic do is tough love. So it's sort of kind of a mean-spirited approach almost, saying scolding yourself for what you're doing. You need to do better. And I do a more compassionate approach. And one of the modalities I recommend in the book is actually called mindful self-compassion. So it's a much gentler and kinder way of getting yourself out of self-sabotage. So that's Mm -hmm. basically why I wrote it. I love that. I love all the reasons why people do what they do. And um, isn't it amazing how when you go kind of public or vulnerable with your information, people show up? And make you not feel mm-hmm. alone, too? It's, it's scary at first, though, it. isn't it? <laughs> You're like, I don't know if I should put this out there. <laughs> and yes. then did you have that moment of like, mm, okay, I'm going to post this. And you're kind of cringing, yes. like, I don't know what's going to happen. Yes, Elizabeth. And the way you described it, it's like you're reading my mind almost. That's exactly what happened to me. I really didn't want to put this stuff out at first because I was, under that shame, I was so used to hiding what had happened to me and the family that I came from and kind of covering up for the family that I came from, that I was scared to put it out there, not only for rejection from the general public, but for backlash from my family. Like I was afraid of what they might say or do, right? So I even considered using an alias and all this kind of stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Finally, I said, no, like you've got to, if you want to have an authentic life, you need to put yourself out there and it's going to take courage. Um, But just like you said, putting myself out there is what showed me how many people are going through the very same thing and how much we help each other to not feel alone. You're absolutely right. And at those times, say holiday time, when it's a little bit lonely, if you don't have a healthy family, my email list keeps me company sometimes. You know, I'll send out an email and I'll get all these responses back about people who are going through the same thing as me. So you really hit the nail on the head with what you just said. Well, I think I think your book um, hits the nail on the head with what you're saying. So I I think this is a really helpful book, too. And it's, you know, sometimes books get all doctored up. And I mean, truly like DR period, like doctored up with this is, this is this and this is this and here's the clinical term for this and that and all this stuff and it's like it misses it misses the mark sometimes because there's it lacks heart and um, mm-hmm. the st- the stories and things like that so I really appreciate it when an author says look this is what happened to me and here it is 
and it's all out here for you to read. Do you want to, um, <clears throat> or listen to, or whatever, do you want to share a little bit about your story with our listeners? So they, um, sure. yeah, if you would, you know, you, I think sometimes people politely use the word dysfunctional family. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I would, I would love to. And I love what you said about Doctor It Up with the, the books on this topic, because I think that is another difference with my approach is that I do use a lot of research and I have a lot of, you know, notes and things um, to back up what I have to say, Uh, but it also is rooted in my own story. And I think that does make a difference. It's not like um, an expert on high who is sort of in the ivory tower, what have you. I'm very much down in the trenches with the people that I work with and the people reading the book. Um, But as far as my story Like I said, I come from a deeply dysfunctional family. There was a lot of emotional abuse and neglect. So I'd say the abuse was more on my mother's side. She had an undiagnosed mental illness that made her very narcissistic, very unable to experience compassion or empathy for anyone, not even her children or least of all her children. And then on the other side, my father was very neglectful. So he really barely even looked at me. And if he ever did, it was only to criticize me. And I remember growing up um, feeling like I was very much alone, like I didn't have anyone that I could go to. And Mm -hmm. my nothing, my emotions weren't supported. I didn't receive any guidance. So I kind of developed this um, persona that was very trauma-based, very, um, it was a trauma response, and I was in a survival mode. So instead of enjoying life and experiencing what the world had to offer and being joyful and playful like a child should be, I was obsessed with keeping myself safe because I had this feeling that nobody really had my back. And so I will say that the only real um, safe haven for me was at school because I was a very good student. So school was one place where I could go and feel like I was, the teachers liked me, you know, my grades were good, I was successful there. Um, But then even at school, as soon as a challenge came up or an opportunity that would ask me to kind of push myself a little bit, I would shy away from that because I was, I just was never taught that life is about challenges. Life is about putting yourself out there, things like that. So I didn't want to take any risks because I was afraid and it felt better to just, you know, stay kind of small, to hide, to be quiet. And you can only imagine how that held me back in life. So the last several years has been really um, just, getting back to or reclaiming kind of the the personality I had when I was maybe like two years old before all these things got to me where I I want positive attention and I want to put myself out there and I want to be successful in the world and take chances and risks and all that stuff. Yeah. Oh, thank you for sharing that. And I, I gosh, I, as you were talking, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I wish you would have had my parents. <laughs> I wish I would have known you. I could have let you borrow mine. Mine are totally cool. <laughs> and Aww, our big family. Uh, well, you know, very in that regard, for sure. Um, you know, we had a, a huge family. I'm I'm in the middle of 11 kids. And um, we took on the people who just didn't have parenting. 
And so mm-hmm. I think I have 11 kids plus about 47 other people, <laughs> my brother's friends, wow. and my sister's friends, and my friends, and everybody. And um, it's it's huge. And at my like at my father's funeral, there were so many people there who considered themselves kids of his that weren't really kids of his, but he had parented them. Tons of people. Wow. Yeah, and, and that was that's... Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, we can um, interrupt. I was gonna say yeah. that's so important. Um, because they do say that for children with kind of the poor parenting that I have, even if they just have one <laughs> adult in their life who can show them support and praise and encouragement, that makes all the difference. So your parents really probably made a lot of the difference in many people's lives. Oh, yeah, they were they were so cool. Um, even in, in like in in your life, you isn't it cool? And don't, aren't you proud of yourself that you've, um, you know, stopped it from moving forward? Like this mm-hmm. would never happen to anybody in your care, or your path, mm-hmm. or you know what I mean? Um, you've you're learning to to not push this forward on others as you've learned or whatever. You know, you're unlearning. And and relearning and all of these things. Was there a moment where you were like, uh, yeah, I'm switching this up and and going to be yeah. an author and do all this stuff? There's got to be an aha moment, two, three, four, five, ten, whatever it is. Um, what's what's yeah. that journey like? Yeah, there have been a few kind of pivotal moments, I would say. And um, I married into a very dysfunctional family as well. So that made it difficult (laughs) to get out of because that happens, you know, you kind of marry into what you're used to, right? Sure. And so that made things even more difficult. And we had a couple of children together. um, And I'm happy to say that I was able to parent those children much better than I was parented. And I can see in their confidence levels and their success levels that um, that's had a great effect on them. Um, But I would say when that marriage ended, that was one of the catalysts for healing because I was finally out of that toxic environment. And during that marriage, I had developed or or deepened um, an alcohol addiction. So I was using alcohol to soothe my pain. And so when I got out of the marriage, Pretty much as soon as I got out, I started to deal with that, and I went into a recovery program, and I got the help I needed to get rid of that. And so yeah. the next two to three years, I spent really dealing with that. And so that was like the the big um, catalyst was healing from that addiction, and that just cleared the fog. You know, it just kind of got the cobwebs out of my eyes, so I could see more clearly. And then another big moment was actually listening to a TED Talk um, about SETI, which is the Adverse Childhood Event Study from 1995. Now, I listened to this much later than 1995, but it was referring to that study. And what that study did is make the link between childhood trauma and adult self-sabotage or, or poor adult outcomes, including illnesses and shortened lifespan and all of that stuff, depression, all of that stuff. And so when I learned about that link, I started to see why I was doing to myself what I was doing and all the ways I had tried to stop, like what I referred to before, the therapeutic techniques, like the willpower and the thought control and all of that that didn't work (laughs) for me. Once I figured out where it came from, 
then I started to study dysfunctional family dynamics because that's what I needed to know about. And once I started to learn about that, that's when all the puzzle pieces fell into place and I knew why I was doing what I was doing and I needed to start within. It, I had to stop treating my symptoms and look inside of me and, and heal that inner child who was dying for love and attention. That was really what needed to go on was a compassionate um, self-love and that's what I spent the last several years doing. I love it. <clears throat> what is, um, who... Who, yeah, I think who's better. Who is Laura today? Like, who are you today? What are you working on? What are you, <clears throat> what are you doing? What are you studying? What are you thinking about? Just yeah. give us some insight. Yeah. Today, I'm actually working full-time as a coach. So that's what takes up most of my time, one-on-one coaching. I am also doing continuing education in Buddhism, psychology, and mental health. So Mm -hmm. mindful self-compassion is something that I got interested in. And like I said, it's a big part of the book, the advice it gives on healing. And this comes from a psychologist at the University of Texas called Kristen Neff, and she studied this extensively. And so this whole mindful self-compassion really changed my life. And mindfulness is a Buddhist concept that's been brought to the West. And so just because of that, how it impacted me, I really wanted to learn more about how Buddhism and psychology can work hand in hand, especially with regard to mindfulness, which is basically just accepting whatever is going on, whether it's your feelings or your circumstances, accepting those and not judging them, and especially not judging yourself for them. And so that's what I'm up to right now. I love it, um, which doesn't matter if I love it or not, but I do love it. <laughs> um, matters <laughs> if our audience loves it and you love it and things like that. But I, you know, I just I love having guests who, who, um, you know, are, are you're kind of in process. We're all in process, really. Um, but I'm hearing like process. Um, do you have a favorite like chap chapter of your book? I know I turned to. Um, it was funny, right before you said Kristen Neff, I saw her name in the book as I was kind of thumbing through. I have your mm-hmm. book and I've I've read part of it and not the not the rest of it. Um and not because I didn't want to, just because I was not feeling super great this month. Um mm-hmm. and I some I have your book right in front of me and I've read I'd say I'd re- I've read most of it. I certainly know what it's all about, but I really my my favorite part of your book is a about um, the clutter, <laughs> like the decluttering. Mm. I'm kind of, I, and I, I do that sometimes too. I'll read the back before I read the front. But I've, I've read the back and read the front, just not the, the middle part of it. But chapter 14 is cleaning out your closet. What does that have to do with any of this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's such a great topic. And that's another uh, big piece of my story too was, when I had to downsize to move into a condo from a house mm-hmm. and thinking that it was all negative, like now I have to, you know, because to me at the time, success meant having more, you know, when your success was reflected in what you owned and things like that. And so having to downsize felt like a failure to me. Mm-hmm. And what I realized is that in downsizing, you really are getting to know yourself better because what you're doing is you are deciding what you like and what you don't like and what's going to stay in your life and what's not going to. 
And this way you're making these decisions based on your values. And it can help you hone your values too. Like what do I want in my life and what do I not want in my life? And then you have to make this decision about what stays and what goes. And so as I did that, I started to get more clarity on what mattered to me. And then this extended out into other areas of my life. So then I started downsizing my calendar. Like I started to look at my calendar. What on here are things that I like doing and what are things that I really don't like doing? And come to find that actually most of the things I was doing, I didn't like. And so (laughs) I wanted to change that. And I understand we all have things that we need to do maybe that we don't love, you know. But if we can have most of the things we do be things that we enjoy, I think that's a lot better. And that means you're more aligned with your values and living a life that's authentic to you. And then I did the same thing with my relationships. Like I looked at, you know, if I spend time with someone and I come away feeling ashamed and depressed and things like that, well, is that really a good use of my time, you know? And I started to examine my relationships and really prioritize the ones that made me feel good. And this is how we set boundaries in a really natural way. I think often we look at boundaries as a very strategic kind of thing, but in a way they come about naturally when you just start prioritizing, you know, what are my values? How do I want to live? What matters to me? And it just comes about naturally. So that's the effect that that had. It was pretty profound. Yeah, I'm going to go back and read every word of this book. I, I, I really love it. And I know I shared kind of my favorite chapter, but do you have one? And I know that's like picking a favorite child. Sorry, but could you want to share one of your favorite chapters? And then we're going to go to um, talking about you becoming an author and that process, if you don't mind. Because we have a lot of people sure. who are like, ooh, I want to be an author. And it's kind of fun. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right about the chapters. It is hard to pick one. But I think I like the, it's between the family scapegoating and the maladaptive daydreaming. I think the maladaptive daydreaming is going to win out because it's something that is quite new. It has um, been coined. This phrase was coined just a few years ago by a doctor in Israel called Eli Somer. And what it Mm -hmm. refers to is this fantasizing that some people do, and it is related to childhood trauma, though that's not the only reason why people do it. Um, But it's not the same as regular daydreaming because it is like elaborate fantasizing that goes on for hours a day. And people do it often. What happens is they have these storylines that they come back to in these fantasies, And the person who's doing the daydreaming is at the center of the fantasy. And they're often someone who's like a celebrity or a famous athlete or someone who is just getting a lot of attention and adulation for something that they do. And so we see that it's sort of like replacing the attention that you're not getting in your real life. And what it does is it holds you back a lot from getting ahead in your actual life because you are devoting so much energy to these elaborate fantasies instead of putting that energy into actually living your life. So, and it's extremely addictive. And the thing I like about this chapter and this topic is that anyone who does this thinks they're the only person in the world who does it. But millions of people do it. It's it's not common, but it's not uncommon either, if that makes sense. 
And so because it's so new and they've actually come up with some treatment for it, which is mindfulness-based once again, and Dr. Eli Somer is the one who came up with the treatment program. It's an eight-week mindfulness-based program, and it's had great results. So people who have done this addictively and not been able to stop, they go through this eight-week treatment, and they come out, and often they are cured. It's had significant results. So I think that's my favorite one, just because it's kind of cutting edge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's not something I've heard of before. And that's Chapter 11, is that right? Which mm, I'm not sure. Is that letting Someone go of the escape end. fantasies? That's the one, yeah. Okay, so that's Chapter 11, uh, page 143. Okay, cool. Um, I, I also like parenting yourself. So, you know, by the end of the show, we'll go through all the chapters, but <laughs> no. Um, I, I like parenting yourself one. Talk about that one, because, boy, we all revert back to, you know, our most interesting three, two, four-year-old selves once in a while. So what's parenting yourself mean? Yeah, parenting yourself is really taking care of that inner child that didn't get Mm -hmm. the care and attention it needed from your actual parents. So if you grow up in a home like I described where you really weren't getting your needs met, um, that child inside of you doesn't really get a chance to grow up and become an effective adult. So self-sabotage is really this inner child who's not healed and who's trying to protect you from what it sees as a very dangerous world. So as you can imagine, if you have a child like this running your life, you're not going to be very successful. You're not going to have a lot of joy and things like that. So the job is to heal this inner child by reparenting it. So you're going to give it love and attention. You're not going to scold it or get mad at it. When it's trying to help you, you're going to say, thank you. Thank you for helping me, but I'm an adult now and I can take care of things. I have resources at my disposal that you didn't have. I have a job. I have people who can help me, all this sort of stuff. And so you just reassure that child that it's no longer needed in that role. And you can even give the child something new to do. Like the child's job can be finding fun things for you to do so you can bring that playfulness into your life. That's an example. We you have a question here from someone, and they, they're asking if you could go a little bit more in depth into your childhood. They're trying to, um, I, I wouldn't say compare theirs to yours, but trying to connect with you in that regard, I think. Um, and so do you mind doing that? Yeah, no problem. So when too I talked much detail, about, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, when I talked about having a narcissistic mother, uh, that really led me to disconnect from myself because when you have a narcissistic parent, they think you're an extension of them. So you're not allowed to have boundaries. You're not really allowed to have thoughts and opinions of your own, and you can be punished for those. So that created this persona where I was very people-pleasing, um, I was very reactive in, ter- in terms of my emotions because in my home, emotions weren't allowed. Only my mother's emotions were allowed, and those were usually explosive, right? So my emotions were very suppressed. But because I'm a human being, the emotions have to come out sometimes. So when they did come out, they were often inappropriate or explosive, things like that. And the other thing I had was what we call family scapegoating. So as I got more into my teenage years, that's when I started becoming a quote-unquote kind of problem child because of all the 
abuse and neglect I was suffering in my home. I was no longer being the good student. You know, my grades were falling. I started partying, things like that. And so instead of looking at me and saying, you know, what's going on with her? Like, why is she acting this way? My parents, especially my father, would point the finger at me and say, oh, you're, you're just a problem. What's wrong with you kind of thing? And it's sort of like the book by Oprah that says um, it's not what's wrong with you. It's what happened to you, right? And that's why she mm-hmm. calls her book What Happened to You. So instead of um, giving me compassion and finding out what was wrong with me, I just became what we call scapegoated. And that's what family members do to one person, usually the one who is more sensitive, more insightful, more truth-telling, that sort of thing, and they make them the problem. And that means they don't have to look at themselves. So the family doesn't have to look at their many problems. They just point the finger at one person and say, you're the problem. If it weren't for you, everybody else would be fine. And it's a very convenient distraction. And it prevents the family from doing the work they need to do to actually heal. Yeah. Um, you got to lay up on this one. She said, she says she wants you to talk about like, were you physically hit, hurt, yelled at, neglected with food? Oh, I mean, she's no. trying to ask you like, what, what kind, what do you mean by dysfunction and neglect? Or yeah, do you mean so neglect? no, I didn't have, yeah. And that's the thing about emotional neglect and abuse. It doesn't leave marks, but it does have a very big effect yeah, on there you. Go. And especially emotional neglect, which has only in the last 10 years or so really come to be talked about at all. And that's Mm -hmm. because it's what your parents didn't do that hurt you instead of what they did do. And I can remember my mother saying that to me when I was sort of still trying to get her to understand, which, of course, I've given up on now. You can't get a narcissist to understand Um, But she said, oh, well, I didn't hit you, so I didn't abuse you physically, so what's the problem? And I remember kind of second-guessing myself and wondering, yeah, what is the problem? Nobody hit me. I wasn't sexually abused, nothing like that. It was all emotional, and it was a lot of just, like, you don't matter. You are not noticed. You are not important. And these things are actually devastating to a child, So that Mm -hmm. feeling of being alone in the world when you are just a child and under-resourced, it feels life-threatening, and it does impact you for the rest of your life. So that's that's what I coped with in a nutshell. It was just a lot of emotional abuse, emotional neglect, um, not getting what I needed, not being um, supported in any way, um, not being allowed to express emotions not being allowed to, not having anyone to kind of go to. So if you have your own children, like I do, you think about how they come to you when they have a problem, um, or you may even notice when something's kind of off with them. You know, I didn't have any of that. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I think that clears it up because she said, thank you. (laughs) So, all right, good. (laughs) Thank you for listening, by the way, and and chiming in. We we appreciate the discussion. Um, We... We're getting kind of short on time. Is there is there anything I missed or didn't ask you that you want to talk about? I know I know I wanted to kind of go. If you don't mind, I'd love to go and talk with you about your pro- author process. Or um, yeah, are you comfortable moving over? Too. Okay, Let's do that. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. So for all you guys listening who 
Um, all you people listening who want to become an author, uh, what was the moment that you decided to become an author and how did you go about doing that? Mm-hmm. Well, writing a book is a big part of my healing process because prior to maybe three years ago when I started this process, I didn't think I had it in me to write a book. And that's a lot of the reason why I would always write shorter articles because I didn't think I had what it took to actually keep my butt in the seat and write a whole book length work. And so that was part of my healing too, to be able to do that. And for me, the process started with blog writing. So I was writing this blog and a lot of the material in the book comes from those blogs. A lot of the ideas in the book come from the blogs that I started writing in 2020. And then of course, when I decided, you know, I'm healing here, I want to write a book. It's a dream I have and I'd like to fulfill it. And I really wanted to do it with a traditional publisher. That was part of my dream too. And so the next step was for me to write a book proposal. So I actually ended up joining um, Hay House's, I think it's called a, I want to say book club or it's the writing community, I think. And they had a book proposal contest. And so I entered it and that gave me the impetus to write a book proposal. So it gave me the deadline and all of that stuff. And so I wrote my book proposal for this book And in that Hay House writing community, I was an honorable mention. So they had first, second, third, and then I think it was first and second, and then like 10 honorable mentions. And so getting that commendation made me feel like, okay, this is a good idea. Like I can go with this. And so I took that proposal. My first book was with them. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm a Hay House author. Fantastic. That's a a really great first publisher. Um, So. Yeah, good. Yeah, I like that too. Oh, thanks. And then I took that proposal and I started shopping it around at, what do they call them, writing conferences where I could meet Mm -hmm. um, agents, literary agents, started talking to literary agents, pitching my idea to them. And then finally, after meeting with, oh gosh, maybe a dozen agents, I think, um, I met up with my current agent, who is Letitia Gomez at Savvy mm-hmm. Literary, and mm-hmm. she took me on. And very soon after that, she got me the um, offer with HCI Books, which are a perfect fit for this book. So that's been the journey. Beautiful. And uh, I see you have Christine involved. <laughs> Isn't it fun mm-hmm. to do um, books with Christine? She's such a wonderful human edit, human being, editor, everything. Um, yeah, did, yeah, she yeah. was a really great editor and very encouraging, absolutely. And then I mentioned her in my acknowledgments, and I wish I had known how much Lindsay was part of the process because at the time I wrote the acknowledgments, it's my first book, I don't know the process, so I didn't know how much Lindsay would be doing. I hadn't I'd met Lindsay yeah. maybe once at the time. Okay. So I would have put her in the acknowledgments too if I had known because she's done so much for me since then. So <laughs> yeah. if I do another book with them, I'll make sure and put her in. I had that I had that process with my Hay House book. I'm like thanking everybody. I'm like, oh man, when it got done, I'm like, oh, there's like five people missing, but you're all, you're all mm-hmm. fine. Oh, thank you. But yeah, no, I mm-hmm. I understand. Um, well, fabulous. And and what's next for you? 
what what do you think you'll write more books are you blogging are you speaking are you teaching what's what's happening Mm-hmm. Right now, I'm really focused on coaching. So I'm really okay. loving one-to-one coaching. That's open right now if anybody wants to coach with me. But that's my main focus. And okay. I would love to write another book. But right now, you know, still promoting this one. It's not on my immediate radar. I really am focused <laughs> yeah. on this coaching business that I love so much, becoming a better coach, being the best coach I can be, continuing my education so I can have the most recent research and modalities available to me to help people. So that's my focus. Beautiful. Yeah. And I, and I think one of the things that having a book does too, is it, um, you know, it, it's for people out there, you know, there's different reasons why we write books. Sometimes it's like, Oh, I want to be a bestselling author on the New York times bestselling list. So I want to use this in my coaching practice and um, have it be something I give to my clients as something I've done. You know, it's it's a calling card in a way too. Um, but there's so many reasons why we write books. Uh, and and one of the things people don't realize about writing a book is it's one thing to write a book, but it's another thing to market it <laughs> and find mm-hmm. the readers, which is as which is the phase you're in. Talk about that mm-hmm. for a minute. What's your marketing process been like? Because a lot of people um, mistakenly think that especially if you're traditionally published, that you just write this book and, the, and then it goes off to publisher of any size, even, you know, whatever it is, and they just take care of everything for you and then you're famous and on the red carpet because you've written a book. Yeah, no, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> no, and books, I think, have become harder to sell, surprisingly, even though they're such a low price point. I think they have become harder to sell um, and I had a real setback because when I started this process, I had um, 50,000 on my Instagram, and that was a big part of my audience. And then about six months before the book was published, that account was hacked, and I had oh, to no. start all over. So that was a really big hit for me. Um, I still had a very healthy size email list, so that helped a lot. But what I've been doing for marketing, and this is one of the reasons I wanted a traditional publisher too, because even though they don't do everything, they do do a lot. A lot. Yeah, they do a ton. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. And they have all the contacts and everything. They know how the process goes. They know what to do. And you have that support behind you as opposed to self-publishing where you really are on your own. Um, But I did use a PR company. I got that for three months, and then HCI was kind enough to give me another month on them. So the last four months I've been using them. And what's great about that is they just send you the leads, and all you have to do is follow up on them. So that's been really helpful because I'm running a business. I, I don't have time to be, you know, looking for leads as well as running my business. So to just have them sent to me, was really helpful. And then, of course, I was appealing to my email list. I did, and I still have a promotion where if you buy the book and you send me a screenshot of your order, I give you $100 worth of course material that I created. So just those kind of incentives yeah. help to um, to get people, to give them a reason to buy the book, you know? Beautiful. Um, all right. Well, it, it's been wonderful meeting you. And uh, everybody, go out and grab It's Not Your Fault. It's by Laura K. Connell, C-O, two N's, E, two L's. And the same, her website is the same, laurakconnell.com. I've got a link on the show. <clears throat> and um, thank you very much for being here and sharing your wisdom and uh, your story and your book and your 
what's going on in your life now and all that good stuff. So it's been really fun getting to know you. Thank you. You're so welcome. I feel the same way, and I'm really grateful to be on here. Thank you. Yeah. All right, everybody. So you know the drill. When we have authors on here, we love to support our guests. Uh, very important. So best ever you community um, rally <laughs> and rally around Laura and her book. Um, I'll post the links to her book, but uh, you can find it on Amazon pretty easily. And the other thing too, when you're on Amazon, please, when you buy um, when you buy the book, please go back and leave a review. Us authors um, need those reviews more than ever on Amazon and the purchases on Amazon because like, I think it's like, not, don't quote me perfectly on this, but it's over 90%, I think, of the books are sold through Amazon these days. So very important platform for our success, and we appreciate your support. So, all right, Laura, thank you for being here, and uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. And a special thanks to Lindsay at HCI and Christine at HCI. Lindsay, thank you for uh, your support in organizing this for us and getting getting us together and then christine thank you for being just such a fabulous human so all right take care everybody laura thank you again and um i hope you come back and i hope you um consider writing for besteveryou.com i think that'd be awesome to have you on there so all righty i would love to to meet you (laughs) all right take care everybody have a great day thank you for listening we're so glad you tuned in be brave be bold See you and remember to visit us at besteveryou.com.